1861, without a doubt, one of the most successful generals on either side was Union General George B. McClellan. His early victories in what is now West Virginia brought him fame and captured the attention of his commander-in-chief, Abraham Lincoln. The president brought the young general to Washington shortly after the Union disaster at First Bull Run and assigned him to the command of the main U.S. Army in the Eastern Theater. There was no more remarkable yoking of personalities in the Civil War than that that coupled Abraham Lincoln and George McClellan. In Lincoln and McClellan, our award-winning speaker takes an in-depth look at this fascinating pair, from the early days of the conflict to the 1864 presidential election when McClellan ran against Lincoln on an anti-war platform and lost. It's a tale of hubris, paranoia, failure, and triumph. John C. Waugh is an independent historian and former correspondent and bureau chief for the Christian Science Monitor. He's the author of several acclaimed books on the Civil War, including Lincoln and McClellan, The Troubled Partnership Between a President and His General, Reelecting Lincoln, The Battle for the 1864 Presidency, and Surviving the Confederacy, Rebellion, Ruin, and Recovery, Roger and Sarah Pryor During the Civil War. So please join me in giving a warm VHS welcome to Jack Waugh, who will speak to us today about Lincoln and McClellan. Thank you very much, Paul. That was a nice introduction. If you weren't so important, I'd ask you to follow me around and do it elsewhere. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of a, a, a refugee from the uh, journalistic world. Uh, about 20 years ago, I flunked retirement <laughs> and started writing books about the Civil War. And so uh, what I'm going to do today is try to tell you a little bit about that very interesting relationship that, uh, that uh, Paul just told us about. And uh, it, uh, when that war started... Abraham Lincoln and George McClellan were not strangers. They knew one another, and they had met often in the late 1850s in Illinois. McClellan was a golden boy of the old army. He was one of its uh, star young officers. He was ticketed for uh, the military heights. But instead, he had left the army in 1857 to become the superintendent and the vice president of the Illinois Central Railroad. Lincoln was a sometime attorney for the line, and McClellan remembered Lincoln well, and not necessarily favorably. <laughs> More than once, McClellan later wrote, I have been with Lincoln in out-of-the-way county seats where some important case was being tried, and in the lack of sleeping accommodations have spent the night in front of a stove, listening to the unceasing flow of anecdotes from his lips. <laughs> the stories McClellan remembered were seldom refined, but he was never at a loss for one, and they were, McClellan admitted, always to the point. The main point McClellan got from all this was that this, that this, this hick of a giant from the Illinois frontier was a good lawyer, perhaps, but certainly not his, McClellan's, social, intellectual, cultural, and moral equal. McClellan was raised in the upper strata of the Philadelphia elite, and this opinion that Lincoln was his social, intellectual, cultural, and moral inferior which he often said, by the way, and was unfortunately an opinion about Lincoln that he would never change. However, McClellan also came to believe that Lincoln was, quote, a rare bird, and much too rare a bird, being a Republican, for him to support politically. McClellan, not heavy into politics, being a soldier, had, however, in Illinois, become a supporter of Stephen A. Douglas, Lincoln's longtime Democratic rival, 
and during the great debates between Lincoln and Douglas in 1858 for the U.S. Senate seat in Illinois, Douglas traveled throughout the campaign in McClellan's personal rail car, sometimes with McClellan in his company. Uh, the rail car was coupled to a platform car mounting a 12-pounder cannon, which boomed the great man's arrival from town to town. <laughs> Lincoln enjoyed no such favors from McClellan. He was often riding in the same train, back in the cars with the common man in third class, no posh executive car or cannon salutes for Lincoln. This brings to mind a story about Albert Schweitzer, the great theologian, philosopher, and physician in Africa, a great man of great humility, whom a friend one day found riding on a train way back in third class, I guess like Lincoln was. The friend was aghast. He said, why, Dr. Schweitzer, why on earth are you riding in third class? And Schweitzer replied, because there is no fourth class. <laughs> McClellan was a prodigy. He was born to a renowned surgeon and raised in the upper echelon of Philadelphia society. He enjoyed the most privileged of classical educations before answering the beat of the drum in his soul and matriculating to West Point in 1842. He was a star at the academy, graduating in 1846, second in his class of 59 cadets, and greatly resenting not finishing first. One of his instructors said, a pleasanter pupil was never called to the blackboard. Every one of his classmates, including the one who was to become a renowned Confederate general, Stonewall Jackson, believed McClellan to be the most prepossessing of them all, bound for military glory, if any of them were. McClellan, like most of his classmates, went to the U.S.-Mexican War, which was declared the very month they graduated, in May 1846. He became an engineer on Winfield Scott's staff in that great general's conquest of Mexico City. McClellan was a courageous and resourceful young officer, twice breveted for bravery, twice having a horse shot out from under him, and in peacetime, following the war in 1850s, he became a favorite of the then Secretary of War, Jefferson Davis, who favored him with prized and prestigious assignments, which he performed brilliantly. And then, although on a fast track in the old army, he left it to go to work on the railroad, where he also performed brilliantly and got to know Abraham Lincoln. When the war came, the young McClellan, not yet 35 years old, instantly became the most sought after West Pointer of them all, coveted by New York, Pennsylvania, and Ohio to command their volunteer armies. He went with Ohio and was ratcheted up overnight to major general of its volunteers. And very soon, given larger command by Lincoln and jumped five grades in the regular army to rank second only to the general-in-chief himself, Winfield Scott. Here was great promise being realized early in the extreme. He went from captain to a major general instantly. Wow. That's traveling pretty fast. Well, that happened in the Civil War with a lot of people, but not, not to that extreme. Troops under McClellan's command won four small skirmishes in Western Virginia in the first months of the war, while the main Union Army at Washington was taking a drubbing 
from a Confederate army in the first big battle of the war across Bull Run on the field of Manassas. Following that depressing downer, McClellan, the hero of the Alleghenies, was urgently called to Washington to take command of the defeated and dispirited army in the East and reorganize it for war. He was called the Little Napoleon, come to save the Union. And so Lincoln and McClellan met once again. Lincoln as the newly inaugurated president and McClellan as his young general. How this important relationship played out could well decide the outcome of this terrible war threatening the Union. McClellan arrived in Washington on July 27, 1861, swept in on a wave of national acclaim. The young Napoleon, in full command of Union hopes, hearts, and hypo. The British journalist William uh, Howard Russell, who was in Washington to report this new war, wrote, he is the man on horseback just now, and the Americans must ride in his saddle or in anything he likes. Everyone is willing to do as he bids. The president confides in him and Georges him. The press fawn upon him. The people trust him. Russell, however, was one of the few skeptics. He didn't believe. McClellan's small victories in Western Virginia warranted all the fuss. Russell called him the little corporal of unfought fields. <laughs> I love the way they expressed themselves in those days. There was something to that sentiment. Although in overall command in the four skirmishes in Western Virginia, McClellan had nothing directly to do with any of them and was not present on the battlefield for any of them. But he was the commanding officer in the uh, area. The noted American satirist James Russell Lowell was also something of a skeptic. He wrote, there is nothing more touching than the sight of a nation in search of its great man. Nothing more beautiful than its readiness to accept a hero on trust. No commander, Lowell wrote, ever had more paid up capital of fortune, this fame in advance, this success before succeeding, than General McClellan. <laughs> Only the year before the war, McClellan had married the beautiful Mary Ellen Marcy, who was a devastator of sorts a devastator of suitors, stubborn chaste against all suit, as Shakespeare would say. Among the many suitors she turned down, some more than once, was the smitten George McClellan, who had come to ardently covet her heart and her hand. And he was the one, finally, who wouldn't give up. After a half-decade campaign, she finally caved in. However, once she did, Mary Ellen, whom McClellan called Nellie, became the most devoted of wives and companions. His proud rock, his sounding board, his shield against what would be an often hostile world, his comfort and ally in all things. She also became his intimate pen pal when they were apart, the one to whom he would confide all things, and indeed did. And now having become in the public mind the man who would save the Union, he was not himself among the skeptics. He confided proudly to Nellie, who he called his little Presbyterian. <laughs> who would have thought, he wrote her, when we were married, that I would, should so soon be called upon to save my country. <laughs> In Washington, he was soon writing her very confidentially, 
Later, later these, these letters that he wrote were unabashedly frank, were published and, and uh, or, or were saved. And uh, thank God we couldn't write about McClellan if we didn't have those letters. In Washington, he was soon writing her, I find myself in a new and strange position here. President, cabinet, General Scott, all deferring to me. By some strange operation of magic, I seem to have become the power of the land. I almost think that were I to win some small success now, I could become dictator or anything else that might please me. He renounced all such intentions, but he was riding the high horse of hubris. But there could hardly have been a better choice of talent to do what had to be done at that moment, to drag a dispirited, scattered, defeated rabble of an army up from despair, reorganize it, and hammer it into a great fighting machine. In this, McClellan had no peer. No soldier in the army had a better grip or was better informed about military organization, strategy, and tactics, the science of war, than George McClellan. He soon proved to be a genius at the job, and within a few short months, he would build the biggest, greatest, best disciplined army on the planet. He had big plans for this great army that he was shaping on his stern anvil of uh, discipline. The plan, he told Lincoln at the outset, was to build an army so powerful that it could crush the rebellion in one blow, terminate the war in one campaign, in one great Armageddon of a battle, crush it at its very heart to display such overwhelming strength as will convince all our antagonists of the utter impossibility of resistance. To convince the South it was a war it could not win. Wouldn't be easy, wouldn't be cheap. McClellan estimated it would take upwards of 300,000 men and millions of dollars, a big order at big expense. But less than a month in Washington, the paranoia set in. McClellan began imagining an enemy in his front far larger, more powerful, better organized, and equipped than his own. He estimated that he faced a Confederate juggernaut at least 100,000 strong, well-trained, well-led, and twice his own size. By mid-August, he would be estimating it at 150,000. It was massed at Manassas Junction and Centerville, not 20 miles away, about to strike a blow against Washington at any moment. In reality, the Confederates across the river were lucky to count 40,000 troops and, and had no intention of immediately attacking Washington. They were simply holding to a defensive position. In virtual panic, McClellan wrote an urgent letter to Winfield Scott, still the Army's general-in-chief, though now an aged and infirm 70-plus years old. McClellan told Scott that he had information from various sources that a Confederate horde out far outnumbering his own was about to attack Washington, that the city was in imminent danger. Scott, however, was not buying any of it. Relying on our numbers, our forts, and the Potomac River, I am confident in the opposite opinion, Scott wrote, Secretary of War. I have not the slightest apprehension for the safety of the government here. This, of course, meant that McClellan had to add one more enemy to these lopsided figures, Scott himself, the general-in-chief. This list of enemies in the rear would continue to swell in McClellan's mind and soon include Lincoln himself, the entire cabinet, the Congress, and indeed anybody in the country who didn't see the situation as he did. 
I'm reminded of Rudyard Kipling's great poem, If, which begins, if you, if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, uh, and the poem that ends with, and which is more, you will be a man, my son. Some wag we wrote it to read. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, perhaps you don't understand the situation. <laughs> there, are, there are certain things you should understand about the McClellan persona. He was charming, a man who made firm friends who never wavered in their allegiance and affection for him. Lincoln liked him very much personally, but it was a charm within limits. I've already mentioned hubris, his eventual detractors, so few at first, so many later, would say of him that he was the only man ever born who could strut sitting down. <laughs> he was the kind of man who, when he formed an opinion, would never waver from it despite evidence to the contrary. He had very little talent for compromise. I don't care much for anybody's opinion, he, uh, wrote, uh, he, he wrote a brother, as long as I'm in the right. <laughs> and in the right, he generally assumed himself always to be. When he reached an opinion and it became cemented in his mind as right, it was not subject to change. And if there was to be failure, he never conceived of it as being his fault. He had also showed in his young career that he tended to be impatient under another's command, irritated by any interference from above in his designs. This was particularly true about interference from people he felt unqualified in military matters civilians in particular, and politicians most of all, including the President of the United States. He despised politicians in general as nothing better than self-interested partisans who should not be meddling in military affairs, particularly in his affairs. And he once compared Congress in session to animal performances in a beer garden. Lincoln, in his view, was the worst kind of politician, not a man of very strong character, destitute of refinement, I'm quoting him here, certainly in no sense a gentleman, was easily wrought upon by the coarse associates whose style of conversation agrees so well with his own. McClellan would soon be calling Lincoln what his outspoken friend, Edwin Stanton, was calling the president before Stanton, amazingly, became Lincoln's Secretary of War in early 1862. The original guerrilla, Stanton called Lincoln. But Lincoln, that most forgiving and unusual of men, a politician who didn't hold grudges, was to reward Stanton despite this calumny with the most powerful position, position in his cabinet. Stanton had talent and drive, and Lincoln needed all the talent and drive he could, he, he could get to win this war. And he respected Stanton for his abilities, not for what he was saying about him personally. When Scott would not buy McClellan's view of the situation, the young general soon began bypassing him, veering outside chain of command, promising the more radical congressman that he would soon attack the enemy, despite the disparity in numbers, if they would help get rid of the old man. Describing Scott to Nellie, again in those, those letters he wrote to her, telling her everything, he wrote, I do not now know whether Scott is a dotard or a traitor. I can't tell which. He cannot or will not comprehend the condition in which we are placed and is entirely unequal to the emergency. 
that confounded old general always comes in the way. He is a perfect imbecile. <laughs> he understands nothing, appreciates nothing, and is ever in my way. Scott very quickly tired of all this. He had been wanting to resign and retire after 40 years in the Army, half of it as his general-in-chief. It's star of stars, the greatest commander of the age. Lincoln didn't want to lose the great general and had refused to let him go. But now Lincoln relented, and on November 1st, 1861, Scott retired. McClellan was delighted to get this roadblock out of his way and to be in charge of everything. Lincoln elevated him to general-in-chief of all the Union armies and said, I should be perfectly satisfied if I thought that this vast increase of responsibility would not embarrass you. Lincoln told him, draw on me for all the sense I have and all the information. In addition to your present command, the supreme command of the army will entail a vast labor upon you. I can do it all, McClellan said. <laughs> Doubts that he intended to, to do anything at all soon began to permeate Washington and the entire Union. The wave of adulation that had buoyed him into Washington had greatly ebbed, and as week after week passed and his great army grew, he showed no signs or inclination to attack the enemy with it. Instead of taking it into battle, McClellan continued building it, riding omnipresently among his men and holding spectacular parades and reviews. None of this satisfied in particular the radical Republicans in the Congress, who in their frustration had formed a joint committee on the conduct of the war to try to prod the general to fight. When McClellan in December 1861 came down with a typhoid, even Lincoln, probably the most patient and least critical, willing to cut McClellan's slack, became restless. Lincoln was beginning to believe, as others long since had, that McClellan was, quote, an admirable engineer, but he seems to have a special talent for a stationary engine. Lincoln could put things very interestingly. <laughs> Earlier in a famous incident, McClellan had shown the ultimate disdain for the president, a famous story. One evening with his personal secretary, John Hay, and Secretary of State William Seward, Lincoln called on McClellan. They learned the general was out, gone to a wedding, but would soon return. After half an hour, for half an hour, the callers waited, Finally, McClellan arrived home, was told the president waited, and instead of greeting him, went directly upstairs. After cooling his heels another half hour, the president was told the general had gone to bed. <laughs> Hay raged against this unparalleled insolence of epaulets, but Lincoln, a patient and forgiving man, said it was better at this time not to be making points of etiquette and personal dignity. But now, with the uh, general down with the typhoid, Lincoln was at his own wit's end. He went to see the quartermaster general, Montgomery Meggs, and he sat down beside the open fire in Meggs' office and said, General, what shall I do? The people are impatient. The general of the army has typhoid fever. The bottom is out of the tub. What shall I do? Meigs recommended that while McClellan was down and out, Lincoln should consult with some of his other generals and ask them the question. Lincoln did so in a series of meetings during which he said, in effect, if McClellan didn't intend to use the army, he would like to borrow it for a time. 
Lincoln never considered these meetings behind McClellan's back as a permanent recourse. When the general was once again up and trucking, by mid-January 1862, Lincoln turned everything back to him. Still, McClellan would not be rushed. He had a very conservative turn of mind for a general. His intent was to build an army so big that it could not fail. And despite the rising public clamor that he do something and do it now, he would ignore it and march to the beat of his own drum. He knew best. He would not move until he thought he had an army so big, so well-trained, so ready, that it couldn't possibly not succeed. And the imagined size of the enemy across the river made this something whose timing rather resembled infinity. <laughs> but finally, in early spring 1862, the time had come when McClellan had to do something. The something he wanted to do was something Lincoln did not favor. Lincoln wanted him to attack the enemy on the ground in his front, his immediate front, and drive it back into Richmond Overland, at the same time leaving the capital behind him safely protected. McClellan, on the other hand, had in mind a different strategy, shipping his great army by water down the Virginia Peninsula, landing in the Confederate rear, and marching into Richmond from there. A massive turning movement, a spectacular run around the Confederate end. Lincoln eventually reluctantly agreed to this strategy. At least it was doing something. And that is how we got McClellan landing here on the Virginia Peninsula on the Confederate flank where he expected to fight that great single rebellion-crushing battle. Take Richmond and end the war. I will not describe this famous Peninsula campaign in any kind of detail, but in short, what played out here in your backyard was this chain of events. McClellan went to the Peninsula with his army, some 100,000 men, in early April 1862, thinking it would be ratcheted up with more troops to about 160,000. And with cover from the Navy, he would march this behemoth on to Richmond. Fearing for the safety of Washington and McClellan's end around, McClellan withheld more than a core of the added troops, which McClellan believed fatally crippled his strategy. Instead of attacking, McClellan laid siege on a thinly garrisoned Yorktown when his critics believed that he could have and should have swatted aside the Confederates there. And after a month-long siege, the rebels evacuated Yorktown and pulled back toward Richmond. McClellan slowly, warily pursued, and by the end of May had fought them in Williamsburg and then at Seven Pines, or Fair Oaks, in front of Richmond, all of it more or less to a draw, none of it the great epic war-ending battle. McClellan continued to move cautiously, delaying, raging against the troops denied him, and pleading unceasingly for instant reinforcements, predicting disaster if he did not get them and blaming Washington for anything going wrong. Lincoln kept urging him to move, to strike with what army he, said he had, which was still the largest in the world. You must act, Lincoln wrote him. Even the Confederates believed he had a bad case of what Lincoln came to call the slows. General Joe Johnston, commanding the Confederate Army on the peninsula early in the campaign, commented during the siege of Yorktown, no one but McClellan could have hesitated to attack. The defensive line is far better for him than for us. Finally, after four months on the peninsula, with no great rebellion-ending battle yet fought and won, 
the act McClellan resorted to was a retreat, which he called a change of base. <laughs> Down the James River to the sanctuary of the naval gunboats. This week-long retreat, change of base, became known as the Seven Days Battles. The Confederate Army, now under Robert E. Lee, Johnston had been severely wounded at Fair Oaks, pursued McClellan's withdrawing army, hammering him repeatedly on the seven-day run down the river. Lee's audacious attacks, however, were generally ill-timed and uncoordinated, and all but one was repulsed. McClellan, while not a gifted attacker, showed a marked talent for waging defensive warfare. When the seven days ended and the Army of the Potomac was out of harm's way under the protective muzzle of the Navy's guns, nobody was quite certain who had won. Both sides got half a loaf. Lee had intended to destroy McClellan's army and had failed. McClellan had failed to take Richmond, but had saved his army. A correspondent from Vanity Fair said, Yes, my boy, we have won a great victory. Now we want to know who is to blame for it. <laughs> Throughout the Peninsula Campaign, McClellan's resentment of those he considered his enemies in Washington in the rear mounted and intensified in bitterness. After the Battle of Gaines Mill, the one defeat for McClellan during the Seven Days Battles, he wrote perhaps the most incendiary message any general ever wrote his superiors. He clearly out MacArthur MacArthur on this one. I feel too earnestly tonight, he wrote his old friend, Secretary of War Stanton, who he now considered a Judas. I have seen too many dead and wounded comrades to feel otherwise than that the government has not sustained this army. If you do not do so now, the game is lost. If I save this army now, I tell you plainly that I owe no thanks to you or any other person in Washington. You have done your best to sacrifice this army. Strong words. That blazing wire, a fire with insubordination, was entirely too hot for the head of the War Department's telegraph office. He scissored out the incendiary indictment, and Lincoln and Stanton did not become aware of it until much later. Letters that McClellan wrote throughout the campaign to his beloved Nellie were just as incendiary or more so. Total condemnations of Lincoln, Stanton, the cabinet, and the radicals in the Congress constantly laying blame on them for a failed campaign. What he had written Nellie in October 1861, when much of the adulation had faded and impatient hostility replaced it, mirrored his thoughts throughout the campaign on the peninsula. I have a set of scamps to deal with, he wrote his beloved Nellie, unscrupulous and false. If possible, they will throw whatever blame there is on my shoulders, and I do not intend to be sacrificed by such people. It is perfectly sickening to have to work with such people, and I to see the fate in the nation of such hands. As for Lincoln, he dismissed him as nothing more, I'm quoting, as nothing more than a well-meaning baboon. What a specimen, he said, to be at the head of our affairs now. Well, after the Seven Days battle, Battles, McClellan, against his vigorous protest, was ordered to abandon the campaign, evacuate the peninsula, and send his army to another new army, now mounting a new campaign aimed, over, aimed overland toward Richmond, what Lincoln had favored in the first place. When that second campaign, called Second Manassas, 
under General John Pope utterly failed, Lincoln, against the outraged protest of his cabinet, reinstalled McClellan as head of the army because he understood, as few did, that what the army most needed again just now was a great reorganizer. And there were none greater at that calling than McClellan. But McClellan was left with very little time to bring another beaten army out of chaos. For almost immediately, in early September, uh, after the Second Battle of Manassas, Lee invaded Maryland, and McClellan had to take his army out, ready or not, to check him. What followed was the familiar pattern of the peninsula. McClellan moving slowly, but finally cornering Lee's army across a little creek in Maryland called the Antietam. There on September 17th, 1862, in the bloodiest single day of the war, McClellan, outnumbering Lee three to one, but believing the odds were just the reverse, fought the battle piecemeal to a standoff. Lee withdrew unmolested over the Potomac the next night, and McClellan refused to pursue without first resupplying his depleted army. For more than a month, he refused to move, despite Lincoln's repeated urgings. When he finally did pursue in late October, but failed to get himself between Lee and Richmond, as the president wanted him to do, Lincoln said he had the slows and on November 7, 1862, he sacked McClellan. It did not mark the end of their relationship, however. The sacked McClellan with his aura as a hero general, despite his failure to destroy the Confederate Army, had become the darling of the Democrats. They nominated him as their candidate to unseat Lincoln in the battle for the presidency in 1864. What an opportunity for the fired employee to get back at the boss. Lincoln won the election. The war ended six months later, and Lincoln was assassinated. And so ended, at last, that troubled, failed partnership. But what are we to make of it? Why did it fail? It involved two great patriots, both of whom wanted to win the war. It should have worked. Why didn't it? I believe the basic reason it failed was McClellan himself. There were mistakes on both sides, surely. But McClellan had failed to fulfill his great promise of military greatness. Then and ever since, many have speculated why this was so. U.S. Grant the general who later succeeded on the peninsula where McClellan had failed, said of him after the war with mitigating kindness, McClellan is to me one of the mysteries of the war, Grant wrote. As a young man, he was always a mystery. He had the way of inspiring you with the idea of immense capacity if he would only have a chance. I've never studied his campaigns enough to make up my mind as to his military skill. Grant is saying all this. But my impressions are in his favor. I have entire confidence in McClellan's loyalty and patriotism. But the test which was applied to him would be terrible to any man, being made a major general at the beginning of the war it has always seemed to me that the critics of McClellan do not consider this vast and cruel responsibility, the war, a new thing to all of us. The Army knew everything to do from the outset with a restless people and a restless Congress. McClellan was a young man when this devolved upon him, and if he did not succeed, it was because the conditions of success were so trying. If McClellan had gone into the war as Sherman, Thomas, or Meade had fought his way along and up, I have no reason to suppose that he would not have won as high a distinction as any of us. So said U.S. Grant. McClellan had his defenders who believed, as he did, 
that his failure was not his fault. One of them was Helmut von Moltke, the chief of staff of the Prussian army in the 19th century. After the war, Moltke had a conversation with an American who said, some of us in America do not estimate uh, McClellan so highly as we do some of our other generals. Moki replied, it may be so, but let me tell you that if your government had supported General McClellan in the field, as they should have done, your war would have been ended two years sooner than it was. One of McClellan's inner circle called this perceived lack of support the first great crime of the war. But this young, untried general, thrust so brutally, so early, into such great responsibility, carried more than the average load of emotional, cultural, and intellectual baggage. Born in the gentry, McClellan's uh, kind were of the best people, where birth and breeding and the cultural and social uh, graces mattered. His yardstick for judging and dealing with others was always dictated from this height where wrong and right were never gray, but black and white. He viewed actions of others always through that prism of class superiority. Seen in that light, their views of contrary to his were looked upon as deliberately threatening, demeaning, and wrong-headed. He considered opposition to him and his views as disloyal and driven by the basest of motives. He was never comfortable in subordinate roles, often aggravating superiors as he attempted to impose his will. He was constantly at war with officials who opposed him, the Scots and the Stantons of this world, even trying to get rid of them. A biographer many years later said of him, he was in a way the, one of the worst subordinates and best superiors who ever lived. As a subordinate, he was restless, critical, often ill at ease, and seemingly unwilling to cooperate with his colleagues or his superiors. He knew what was best, and others were, in his estimation, ignorant or insincere. But as a commanding officer, he was always thoughtful, considerate, careful, and deeply sympathetic with the rank and file of his men. They knew this and they loved him for it. McClellan saw himself on a sacred messianic mission to, to save the Union, the chosen one of God for this duty, and he banked heavily on that imagined truth. When confronted with setbacks, as he often was in his dealings with Lincoln and his superiors and detractors in Washington, he overstated the difficulties and overreacted to them, and would not for an instant accept blame for things gone wrong. While highly critical of others, he was quick to justify himself. This lofty view of himself, sadly, was in the end without accompanying achievement. And he tended to convert minor successes or failures into sensational accomplishments. I've done considerable McClellan bashing here, but he was a unique man. He organized a great army, the greatest on the planet, as perhaps no other man could have. He took hold of the Green and Awkward Army of the Potomac with intelligence and skill, one of his soldiers later wrote, and soon put new life and vigor into it. Our demoralized regiments and brigades were reorganized and divisioned our disorganized batteries were rehorsed and equipped and put to drill. Our forts were overhaul overhauled and our line of defenses extended and strengthened. All that McClellan did. He radiated, one of his officers said, personal magnetism which was a potent, if not irresistible, force. His protective love of his men was angelic. His ability to stir the love of his army was astonishing. One of, one of his officers said of him, 
No other commander ever aroused the same enthusiasm in the troops, whether in degree or in kind. He could so move upon the hearts of a great army as the wind sways long rows of standing corn. Tragedy of all this was that he could not convert this great charisma and hold over his soldiers into victory on a battlefield. There the instinct of a great commander, imagination, failed him. He did not have a mindset but was flexible and conditioned to change instantly if necessary. When he set his mind on a course, he tended to blank out facts that argued against it. He could always see how he could improve his army, make it better, more prepared, more powerful, if given time. And he took the time. He made promises of victories which he failed to fulfill. Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells believed from the beginning that he simply wilted away in tame delays and criminal inaction. William Swinton, the militarily savvy correspondent of the New York Times, believed he halted too often in the perilous halfway house between the offensive and the defensive. He created an army, one of his aides at Antietam later admitted, which he failed to handle, and conceived plans which he failed to carry out. Lincoln, assessing his general, said, he is well-versed in military matters and has had opportunities of experience and observation. Still, there must be something wrong somewhere. And I'll tell you what it is. He never embraces his opportunities. That's where the trouble is. He always puts off the hour for embracing his opportunities. McClellan's military idol, the model, role model of most generals in his age was Napoleon, a paradigm of adaptability, celerity, and instinct for the strategic advantage and for the drugular. Admiring Napoleon in theory, McClellan never emulated him in practice. He had a defensive, not an offensive, mindset. He habitually magnified obstacles into impossibilities, one critic wrote, and deferred great deeds to, the, to a future which, which had no possibility. A brave soldier, he made a timid general. One reporter of the war wrote to McClellan, he was assuredly not a great commander for he had the pedantry of war rather than the inspiration of war. His power as a tactician was much inferior to his talent as a strategist, and he executed less boldly than he conceived, not appearing to know well those counters which, with, with which a commander must work, time, place, and circumstance. He appeared unable to pluck the passing day. It was said of Stonewall Jackson McClellan's classmate at West Point, that he handed his soldiers a musket, 100 rounds of ammunition each, a blanket, and then drove us so like hell. That was never McClellan's approach to war. He was not the type of general to drove them so like to hell. He was a military pessimist, generally imagining himself outnumbered, imagining the worst that might happen, not imagining that it could also be happening to the enemy, as well, and constantly preparing for it to the point of painful overcaution. Finally, McClellan made the grievous mistake of misjudging, indeed ignoring, the will of the people of the North, impatient for action, for victory, for a quick end to the war. On to Richmond was the cry of the country. McClellan, however, marched instead to his own more muffled drum set to a more measured beat and unmindful of the more urgent pounding, it was a fatal fault. But perhaps his greatest mistake of all was not bonding with Abraham Lincoln, his president and commander-in-chief, not drawing on him for all the sense and information he had, as Lincoln had early urged him to do. Instead, McClellan saw Lincoln 
as another enemy, another enemy. Being born to high culture sometimes breeds hubris. What had seemed so fortunate to him, his upper-class upbringing, was in the end a fatal liability. Believing Lincoln below him in class, a cultural, intellectual, social, and moral inferior, blinded him to Lincoln's brilliance. He could not bring himself to believe that a man born so low, so common, so political, could have a mind for the ages. A brilliant man himself, he could not see true brilliance in others. He was nearsighted. He could not see greatness. Because he could not see the greatness in Lincoln, as Grant could, it made all the difference. In effect, it destroyed McClellan's career and glorified Grant's. Lincoln had held out his hand to McClellan for as long as he could, and McClellan refused to grasp it, refused to confide in the president, refused to make him his true partner. Above everything else, I believe that had been his Achilles heel. All of these traits and misjudgments in the end contributed to his failure and have kept him from the pantheon of great commanders while Lincoln is firmly enshrined in the pantheon of great presidents in the mind of many the greatest. Thank you. I'll shut up. I think we're going to do questions and answers, at least briefly. I think you're going to be recognized uh, one of these days. <laughs> you, you analogized uh, McClellan as um, out MacArthuring MacArthur. I was wondering if you'd like to develop that a little further. Oh, you mean comparing to M MacArthur and... Uh, or uh, compare McClellan to MacArthur that you're wanting? Well, I think they both had a common hubris, and uh, I think that mattered a lot, and I think they both had the same disdain for the presidents, the presidents of, that were, were over them, uh, MacArthur for Truman, in his case, and McClellan, of course, for Lincoln. So I think there are definite parallels to those two, uh, those two things. There are certainly certainly differences, but I think that uh, it's a pretty good comparison that uh, you, you have a, a general who uh, is so full of himself that he thinks he's right and the president is wrong. It doesn't work in our democracy. It's never going to work, and uh, I think a, a general has got to understand that. Grant, or Grant did understand this, and consequently he, uh, he and Lincoln worked together in harness extremely well, but uh, Grant knew his place, and uh, MacArthur didn't know his place. McClellan did not know his place. I think those are the parallels. Yes, sir. If McClellan uh, was so popular with the troops, why did they vote so strongly for Lincoln in 64? Yeah, they, they voted very strongly for Lincoln. That was because the Democrats passed a plank that had called the war a failure. And uh, although McClellan renounced that plank, another interesting thing about that election, is the, the candidate renouncing his own platform, or at least one element of it. But in the soldier's mind, that was a terrible thing. And uh, they were not going to vote for anybody who was running on that kind of a, with that kind of a party. And I think that uh, uh, Lincoln was also very popular with the troops at this point. And I think all that came together to say, look, we, we love him as a general. We love him as a commander. But we don't love him as a presidential candidate. They made that distinction, and they voted very strongly against him. You know, uh, uh, seven to one in the in the east where he was commander, and uh, eight to one in the west where he was was even less known. So, it's a very interesting thing about that uh, that re-election campaign. Whatever happened to McClellan? How did his life end? The end of the story, just brief, briefly, uh, after this. Yeah, he, uh, uh, after he was 
uh, defeated for president, he resigned his commission, and he said, I will never again uh, uh, be a public figure or hold public office. And several years later, he ran for governor of New Jersey. <laughs> and, and was elected, served one term. That's all you could serve in New Jersey then. It was just one term. Did a very creditable job. And then he became sort of a, a, a general emeritus uh, after the war. And he was called on to give talks. He gave a very moving talk at, uh, at, at, uh, at Antietam in 1885, in which the soldiers of both uh, armies came and met together and uh, paraded uh, uh, before him. And he, he, he took their parade and their salutes and gave a very moving talk. And uh, just a few months later, uh, he passed on. He had a heart attack and passed on. But uh, he, he lived to be a very respected man, but he, uh, he, never, he, he never owned up to some of his faults, ever. And of course, he left those wonderful letters he wrote Nellie. Backing it up to the time that Grant was called in to take over the Army up until the election, what was, what was his role? What was McClellan's role? Was he still in the Army? And uh, if so, doing what? He was, he was still in the Army, and he was totally on the shelf. In fact, in, in, in the dust in the back end of the shelf. <laughs> he, was never, he was never contacted again by, by Lincoln or anybody else in authority. He just sat there wondering what was gonna to happen to him. That's basically what happened. And then what happened is that he was nominated for president. And he didn't, he didn't uh, you know, in, in those days, a, 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 the basic view of a general was that uh, any self-respecting general would not seek the nomination for president. But if, if uh, called upon, uh, he would run anyhow. And that was kind of McClellan's view of politics. But uh, he, uh, he uh, uh, just had that kind of a mindset. Have I answered your question? I sort of lost it in the, uh, in the flow of my own voice. No. <laughs> you answered the question. Thank you so much.